Who has benefited from the All-Star game being moved from Atlanta, Georgia, predominantly minority city, to Denver, Colorado, predominantly a white city? Who's benefited, who's lost? And what's the principal basis for the decision? And what are its implications for the future of sports and politics? You'll hear a discussion of that on today's Dirt Show. Welcome to the Dirt Show. Uh, sorry, we were not able to have a Dirt Show yesterday. The first time I've missed it since the beginning. I'm in New York on Family Matter, and so I'm uh, broadcasting from uh, New York City. I hope we'll be able to continue to broadcast on a regular basis until I get back to my home studio. In the meantime, we're ready to go. I want to talk about Major League Baseball again today. As you know, Major League Baseball moved the All-Star game, very, very important game. It was supposed to uh, celebrate the life of Hank Aaron, one of the greatest players who ever lived uh, from Atlanta, in Atlanta, but they've moved it to Denver, Colorado. And and my question is, why and what are the implications and what kind of a precedent does this set? Uh, uh, the commissioner of baseball uh, uh, is a terrific guy. Uh, uh, and, 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 and I remember him as a student. Uh, he was uh, just a wonderful, thoughtful man, uh, somebody who's not in any way an extremist, uh, Rob Manfred. Um, I've sat next to him uh, in the owner's box at uh, Red Sox games. I've met him on a number of occasions when the Red Sox have played in the World Series. I've met him at other Major League Baseball events. I've always liked him very much, and I still like him. But I'm just not sure that this was the right decision about the right issue. Uh, let's go back in time a little bit. Um, a few years ago, the All-Star Game in basketball was moved from uh, North Carolina because North Carolina had passed some rules that, that um, eliminated or abolished uh, bathrooms for transgender people, including at stadiums, including at basketball games. And although I thought that was a close question, I can more fully understand why uh, uh, basketball would move out of a state that wouldn't allow people equal rights in the stadiums that basketball games taking place in. Uh, obviously, to take an extreme case, if some crazy state, and nobody would ever do it today, but years ago, would have said, look, black and white people have to sit in different sections, or black people won't be admitted, or gay people won't be admitted to a basketball game. Of course they would move out of that state. You can't allow a state to violate the rights of your own fans in, in ways that directly involve the sport. So whether one agrees or disagrees with um, the NBA, National Basketball Association's decision, I tend to agree with it, um, to move the All-Star game out of uh, North Carolina because of the issue of transgender bathrooms and, and discrimination, overt discrimination. Um, in um, um, stadiums that involve the playing of these games. Baseball is, 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 is different, and, and, and this law is different. This law doesn't affect baseball. It doesn't affect how baseball games are played. It doesn't affect anything to do with the All-Star game. Uh, people think that Georgia made a mistake and passed a law which um, uh disenfranchises certain voters and makes it easier for Republicans to win elections. I, I tend to agree with them. I would have voted against the law. I don't think it's necessary. I would rather see expanded voting with safeguards, obviously. 
but they made their decision democratically. Republican-controlled legislature, the Democrats control both Senate seats in a recent election. The governor is Republican, the secretary of state is Republican. We, we have a divided state. And when states have state legislatures and the governor of the same party, they will often try to create laws that benefit their party. Gerrymandering is as old as Eldridge Jerry, one of the founders of our country. It goes back to the late uh, 18th century. Uh, and, and the question is, should baseball throw itself into the thicket of partisan politics uh, in, in areas that don't apply directly to baseball? Now, the argument is, of course, that Although the motive uh, behind passing the laws in Georgia was simply to help the Republican Party to diminish Democratic voting, increase Republican voting, the impact may very well have been differentially uh, on minority uh, people. The, the evidence of that is not completely clear. The New York Times had a very thoughtful analysis of the general impact of Georgia's law on voting, and they came to the conclusion, no big deal, that it's not going to have a big impact on voting, on voting turnout, and it doesn't look like it's going to have an impact that distinguishes dramatically based on, on, on race. Look, in the Old South, race was more important than politics. In the Old South, even if the Democrats would hurt themselves by voting to restrict black voters, they would do it. Famous case involving the Democratic primary, where the Democrats decided that they were just a knitting club, uh, like any other club, and they could exclude members, and they excluded all blacks from voting in the primaries. That had everything to do with race. It was all about disenfranchising black voters. This has a racially disparate impact, according to its critics and opponents, but the motive is politics. The motive is just to increase the number of Republican voters and decrease the number of Democratic voters. And, and, and if Major League Baseball starts to look at every state and every state law, there are 40 states now that are considering changing election laws based on the 2000 election and some of the complaints that arose from it, complaints that, you know, vary from substantial to insubstantial, provable to unprovable. But if every state now comes under scrutiny by Major League Baseball, I'm not sure there will be enough stadiums to hold All-Star Games or other important events like the World Series in years to uh, come. Uh, this is politics. This is partisan politics. This is throwing people into the thicket of partisan politics. And I don't know what the limiting principle is. Uh, when you look, for example, at the decision to move it from Atlanta, Georgia to Denver, Colorado, who, who loses and who benefits? Uh, the losers are lots of black-owned businesses in Atlanta, Georgia, which is uh, very largely, I think it's the largest proportion of, of minorities uh, in any large city in the United States. And the losers are going to be the residents of Atlanta. Even Stacey Abrams, who was strongly opposed to the law, was against moving the All-Star game because it hurts her constituents. And, and who does it benefit? It benefits uh, small uh, owners of stores and uh, other facilities in Denver, Colorado, a, a very, very white city with a relatively small minority population, under 10 percent, I think. And the major beneficiaries will be white uh, store owners, or hotel owners, and, and others who will benefit from the move. Moreover, Colorado has some pretty restrictive voting laws, in some respects even more restrictive than in Georgia, in other respects less restrictive. The issue is not, again, 
whether Georgia was right or wrong to pass their law. I think they were wrong. Uh, the issue is not whether Colorado has better or worse laws. In some respects, they're better. In some respects, they're worse. The issue is whether this was a principled enough decision um, to create a precedent that Major League Baseball can live with in the future. And, and I don't think it is. Even if the voting law is bad, which I think it is, wrong, which I think it is, and even if it's as wrong as Stacey Abrams and others think it is, which, according to the New York Times, it's not, this just does not seem like the kind of principled issue on which you make an important decision like moving the All-Star game. This is not apartheid. This is not Jim Crow. Those are all exaggerated overstatements. This is a power grab by the Republicans who control the legislature for how long, who knows, to try to solidify their majority and to make sure that the election that was held in January, which narrowly elected two Democrats to the Senate, doesn't reflect a trend that will put the Georgia in the hands of Democrats for years to come. It's a power grab. It's a power grab much like power grabs that have occurred in so many other states, when as soon as the one party gets control, they malapportion, they reapportion. The Supreme Court has placed limits on that, but not too many limits. You can still have reapportionment that benefits one party or another, as long as it doesn't have a major disparate uh, racial uh, impact. And of course, the Georgia law will be challenged in court under the precedents, and probably parts of it may be struck down as unconstitutional, other parts of it will probably be upheld. It will be a mixed picture, because the law itself is a mixed picture. There will probably be challenges to the Colorado law as well. But where does this lead us? What worries me particularly is what happens if juries render verdicts that are unpopular with certain constituencies? Will that result in moving games out of Minneapolis? Uh, will the All-Star game not be scheduled for Minneapolis? If the jury in the Chauvin case were to come to a conclusion of not guilty or guilty only of manslaughter, uh, you know, there's a big difference when you start putting pressure on jurors than when you start putting it on legislatures. Legislatures are built to resist pressure. Lobbying is part of politics. But lobbying and pressure are not part of our judicial system. And if any jurors, and remember, the jurors in the Chauvin case are not sequestered. They go home every night. They're told not to turn on the television. Yeah. They're told not to read the newspapers. Right. They're told not to discuss the cases with their spouses or their loved ones. Yeah. We know how effective those uh, prohibitions are. You can just assume that the jurors in the Chauvin case are fully aware of what's going on outside the courtroom. They're fully aware of Al Sharpton. They're fully aware of the lawyers for the uh, Floyd family. And they're fully aware of the possibility that you could get a Rodney King reaction, Rodney King reaction, if you had a Rodney King type verdict in this case. And uh, jurors will be influenced by threats to their communities, threats to their businesses, uh, whether the threats be threats of violence or threats of economic boycotts. Uh, boycotts should be reserved for very, very special situations. Obviously, if you had a situation like we had in the South, when I was a law clerk on the Supreme Court, we could never get a Southern jury to convict uh, Ku Klux Klan murderers. Uh, we had cases like that when I was clerking. We had a case where the governor of one of the states, uh, Ross Barnett, uh, was held in contempt. And the jury just immediately uh, would acquit him uh, and give him an honor and, and praise him. That was injustice. And I could easily see a boycott when you had systematic injustices 
that occurred throughout the system where it was impossible for a, a white killer to be convicted by an all-white jury. That's not the situation today in Minneapolis. You have a mixed-racial jury. You have a very good judge. Yes, you have a white defendant and a black victim, but that doesn't necessarily mean that race will play a role in the outcome of this case. So I'm deeply concerned. I'm a baseball fan. I love baseball. I collect baseball memorabilia. I have a ring of the 1947 Dodgers, Jackie Robinson's first year when the Dodgers won the National League uh, pennant. I have a ring when the Brooklyn Dodgers won the only World Series in their history in 1955. I was a freshman at Brooklyn College at the time. And I have a Red Sox World Series ring because I was very friendly with the management known as the Red Sox and had season tickets for many years and used to go to the game and was considered part of the Red Sox family. I was in the I was in the locker room when the Red Sox won their only World Series at home, and I had uh, Big Poppy pour champagne on my head. I didn't wash my hair for three days. Um, so I'm a fanatic when it comes to baseball. If the Brooklyn Dodgers ever came back to Brooklyn, I'd probably move back to Brooklyn and try to get a, an apartment right near Evans Field if they rebuilt Evans Field. Not going to happen, and the Brooklyn Nets will have to serve as a surrogate for me for my Brooklyn roots and fans. But I love sports. I love baseball. But baseball is the American pastime. It's not the Democratic Party's pastime. It's the American pastime. Now, there are arguments that have been made, I don't know whether they're true or not, that the reason that uh, Rob Manfred moved and the reason MLB moved the All-Star game was because this was supposed to be a celebration of Hank Aaron in Atlanta. And there was fear, maybe even threats or maybe even notifications, that uh, black All-Stars would not show up if the game were held in Atlanta. And the embarrassment that it would cause to Major League Baseball to have an all-white All-Star game in a city like Atlanta would obviously create all kinds of, uh, of problems uh, for Major League Baseball. And they took the least uh, a dangerous and costly alternative that is moving the game to Denver so that everybody will want to play. And maybe it was a decision calculated just to do what's best for Major League Baseball. If that's the case, look, I can't criticize it. But I worry about the precedent. I worry about the future. What's going to happen? Because every time an all-star game is scheduled, there are going to be people in that community that will say, no, 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 not in my backyard, not here. We have problems in our state. Uh, look, if it was scheduled in New York, you'd get all kinds of complaints about what's going on in New York today with the police, what's going on in New York today with closures of businesses. Every state has its complaints there would be complaints about the governor of New York, the mayor of New York. There are, there are complaints, and those complaints are appropriately voiced under the First Amendment, the right to petition government for a redress of grievances, the right of free speech, of free expression, of freedom of the press. All of those must remain viable. And boycotts have to remain a possibly available tactic under the First Amendment. Uh, there were black boycotts of white-owned stores during the Southern boycotts, uh, and there were counter boycotts by whites of black-owned stores. Uh, boycotts are a two-edged sword. But they're available under the Constitution. But in my view, they should be used sparingly. They should be used wisely. And when they're used, there should be a principled basis for using them. So I'm waiting for Major League Baseball. I'm waiting for our former student at Harvard Law School, Rob, who we're very proud of and who's done a great job in baseball to articulate a little bit more clearly the justification for why the passage of this law in this state at this time 
justifies the dramatic move of uh, taking the All-Star game out. This also has international implications. Uh, the NBA, Major League Baseball, soccer, all have deals uh, with repressive regimes, uh, with, with China. Um, the World Cup uh, is being played in, in a, a place that uh, there are many complaints uh, about. Uh, so uh, is this going to have now international implications? Remember, once before, we canceled uh, our appearance in the Olympics, and I think everybody regarded it as a terrible, terrible mistake when Jimmy Carter unilaterally uh, canceled American involvement in the Olympics because of our uh, concern about what uh, Russia, the Soviet Union, uh, or Russia was doing at the time. It had a terrible impact on athletes who had athletes who had spent years preparing for the Olympics and weren't uh, permitted to play in them. I have a friend who was a swimmer who was going to swim in the Olympics, and he ended up not being able to because of a decision to pull the United States out of the Olympics for political uh, reasons. Look, I think the United States shouldn't have participated in the 1936 Olympics in Berlin, Germany, presided over by Adolf Hitler. I would have been completely supportive of that. Remember, the Hitler wouldn't allow Jewish runners to run. Uh, Marty Glickman, uh, a great athlete uh, from Brooklyn, uh, was precluded from winning a gold medal in the 400-meter uh, uh, relay, uh, the one that Jesse Owens won, one of his uh, three, I think, maybe four, three medals, the uh, United States made the best of it. We brought black athletes to Germany, and uh, black athletes won medals. Uh, the Jews didn't do as well. They were kept out of the Olympics by Nazi decrees headed by Adolf Hitler. We made a terrible mistake participating in those Olympics. So these are all going to be matters of degree. But my point is there has to be a principled basis for making the decision. And I haven't heard the principled basis on which the Major League Baseball made its decision to leave Atlanta. So I'm waiting. I'm waiting to hear from my callers. Maybe you can justify it. Maybe you can't. Maybe you know people who have provided better justifications than the ones I've seen up to now. Of course, as usual, I would invite Rob Manfred to come on the show to explain what he's done. Maybe he'll change my mind. It's very possible. I have an open mind on this issue. I hope I have an open mind on all issues. Now, let's turn to your calls and your input, your wits on the dirt show. Now to my favorite part of the dirt show, the wits, the callers, first caller. Hello, this is Howard from Boston. I enjoy listening even when I disagree with you. How is the Chauvin trial materially different from the events surrounding Tony Timpa's death at the hands of the police uh, back in 2016? Thanks for your show. Okay, for those of you who don't know about the Timba case, it was a white person who was subdued by the police. Um, every situation is different. Um, the constraint took uh, less time. Uh, the video shows policemen laughing. It was a terrible, <clears throat> terrible situation. But every case is different, and the police should be judged and brought to justice every time they bring about a result, whether it be a result like the kind in the Timba case or in the uh, George Floyd case. So there are similarities and there are differences. And the very important thing about our legal proceeding is we judge every single case on its own merits and demerits. And the government must prove beyond a reasonable doubt every element of a crime involving this defendant. This is not this case, the Chauvin case, is not a referendum on racial justice in America. 
It is a trial of an individual defendant, just as the Timba case involved individual defendants, policemen, who should certainly have been held accountable for what they did in that case as well. Hello, uh, Hunter in Orlando. And uh, I was wondering about any kind of legal precedents relating to a case like this in the Chauvin trial. I was wondering if the defense or the prosecution has explicitly mentioned any or if you know of any personally. But I have a couple hypotheticals. What if um, a police officer was arresting an elderly person, for example, and they had them in handcuffs and they told them to get on their knees? And let's say the, the fact that they forced them to stay on their knees caused a blood clot and it ends up giving them a, a stroke or something and they die because of that. But it being a combination of them being elderly with the fact that they were forced on their knees, it seems pretty clear and cut that this would not be a cause. This would not be the officer's fault in this case. It would seem this hypothetical. I was thinking of another situation, which is, uh, I think it was Sandra Bland or something, who was in custody and ended up committing suicide. And you could argue that the actions of the police and putting them in their cell by themselves and not taking the proper precautions for someone suicidal resulted in her committing suicide. That would be another circumstance where I could tie the police officer's actions that were legal to the death of a person being arrested. So I was just wondering if you knew of any precedents like this. There are hundreds of precedents. I used to teach them. Uh, we take a whole week talking about causation in, in criminal law, and the suicide cases were among them. For example, there's a case that took place in the early 20th century uh, when a woman was um, about to be raped uh, by a man, and that would have not only caused her uh, horrible, horrible um, trauma, but it would have also caused her, in those days terribly, her reputation to be uh, very, very seriously uh, hurt. And, and she ran away from the man. She was upstairs in her uh, apartment. And to avoid being raped, she jumped out the window and committed suicide. And the issue was whether or not he had caused her, her death or was her death caused by the intervening act of another human being, a rational decision to commit suicide. In that case, obviously, the suicide was a direct result of the threat of, of raping her. There's another famous case where a um, person was shot and would have lived, but was taken to a bad hospital, bad doctor, malpractice, and the patient died. It was the malpractice of the doctor. A sufficiently intervening causes. Cases like this are legion. I would say that probably criminal law casebooks have hundreds and hundreds of these cases uh, over time. Uh, I used to give a hypothetical based on a, a real situation. You have two people shot um, uh, under exactly the same circumstances. Uh, the bullet hits exactly the same place, the same likelihood of death. One of them is taken to the best hospital in the city and survives. The other one is taken to the worst hospital in the city and succumbs. So everything is equal except for one good hospital, one bad hospital, obviously not the fault of the defendant or the fault of the victim. Um, is the decision to send to one hospital rather than the other uh, an intervening cause? These are all the kinds of issues that will have to be considered, not only by the jury, but by the judge in giving the instruction, because the instruction tells the jury how to consider these issues. And uh, if I were the defense, and I don't know why they didn't do it, or maybe they did, I'm not aware of it. I would have asked for the instruction on causation prior to the beginning of the trial so that the evidence can be suited to what the instruction is going to be. The instruction shouldn't come as a surprise at the end of the case. But in this case, we wait and see what the instruction is. It may have a big outcome on the effect of the case. Just remember, if they don't prove causation, the case is over. 
you don't get to whether it's first-degree murder, second-degree murder, third-degree murder, manslaughter, first-degree, second-degree. In this case, it's second-degree, third-degree murder, or second-degree manslaughter that charge. You don't get to those issues unless you get over the hump of the government, the state, proving beyond a reasonable doubt that the actions of the defendant was the cause of the death of the victim. So the most important critical issue. Great question. Thanks for your very, very important question. Hi, Professor, D Professor Dershowitz. This is Daniel, 33, from Bakersfield, California. I was just watching you on Newsmax and saw in your, the background that you had some pretty cool works of art there in your office or wherever you were, and I wanted to know if, I know it's probably off subject from whatever you're talking about, but I wanted to know if you'd ever feel like discussing some of uh, the works of art you collect and uh, if there are any particular artists that you collect and if you have any favorite paintings or if you'd like to talk about maybe that aspect of art collection. So thank you very much. Take care. Bye. Boy, would I love to do that. I am a fanatical collector. I actually wrote a book about collecting. It's called Finding, Framing, and Hanging Jefferson. It, uh, the name of the book comes from uh, the fact that I found in a bookstore uh, a letter from Thomas Jefferson on the 25th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, a letter about free speech, and I bought it. And I wrote a book about it. I wrote a book about the letter, the history of the letter. But in the book, the first chapter is all about collecting. I collect everything. Um, I collect uh, material from the early United States. I have a very early copy of the Declaration of Independence. I have the first copy of the Declaration of Independence printed in a magazine, the first copy of the Declaration of Independence that appeared in a book. Um, I have uh, autographs of every president of the United States, except for Joe Biden. I haven't gotten his autograph yet, but I have every other president from Washington to Trump, the last few of them signed to me personally. Um, I have a, a lot of 20th century uh, art. Uh, in my office, I have some of my uh, favorite uh, uh, artists, but most of our art is, um, you know, hanging on walls uh, in the living room. Um, and uh, I, I love to talk about art. Behind me, uh, you'll see a picture. Let's see, I'll move to this side. This is a, a picture of a, a Jewish scene on a Friday uh, night uh, Shabbos dinner. And it was actually painted by my cousin uh, named Yessel Dershowitz, who was an artist in Williamsburg in Brooklyn. And uh, he painted uh, scenes of, uh, of Jews in their home, much the way Chagall and Manny Katz and others painted Jewish shtetl scenes. Um, and um, my cousin um, uh, also painted a picture of my family synagogue. Um, I grew up in Williamsburg. I was born in Williamsburg until I was four or five years old. And then we moved to Borough Park. But when I was in Williamsburg, the family had a shul, a, shul, a little shtibel, a little synagogue, uh, which my grandfather, who was a cantor, a chazan, uh, presided over. And my cousin did a painting of that synagogue. I'd love to have it, but another member of my family was fortunate enough to have it. But uh, I'd love to discuss my art someday. If there's sufficient interest, if any of you call in and want to hear about uh, my art, I'm, I'm happy to discuss it. I'm happy to discuss my views uh, on art and uh, how I collect and uh, what I buy and uh, how I look for bargains and go to flea markets. One of the things I've missed most this year, uh, being uh, isolated um, because of COVID, is I usually go to at least a dozen flea markets a year and I find treasures in the flea markets. I find great, great items, uh, a lot of art. I bought uh, a Rockwell Kent drawing at a, uh, uh, a flea market. 
I've bought an El Lissitzky drawing at a, a flea market. Uh, I've bought uh, the great Karsh photograph of Winston Churchill at a flea market. And uh, I think any of you who are interested in collecting, you could find my book online probably for a couple of bucks now. It's, it's either called the hard cup cover was called Finding Jefferson, and the soft cover, they gave it a more dramatic title, Finding, Framing, and Hanging Jefferson. And it's all about my collections. And it has pictures of some of the art I collected, including the first Kandinsky that I bought for $25 when I was a young student and had uh, no money uh, to the most recent art, which is uh, somewhat more expensive. But thanks for your question. You made my day by asking me about uh, uh, my art. I'll move again to another side and show you a, a picture, uh, a strange picture. Uh, that's a picture of the czar uh, done by a Russian uh, dissident during the communist rule who uh, thought the czar was better than the then current uh, communist rules. I don't agree with them, but I thought it was a wonderful piece of, of Soviet realistic art founded at a flea market for a few hundred dollars and had to schlep it home in the back of a taxi cab. And uh, my wife doesn't like it, so it's been relegated to my office. In fact, most of the art in my office has one criteria. My wife doesn't like it, and I do. So it gets into my office. If my wife likes it, then it stays in the living room. Thanks again for your great question. I really enjoyed the opportunity to talk a little bit about my art. Hi, my name is Sandy. I'm from Louisiana. I enjoy listening to your show. We disagree on several points, but I do like hearing others' perspectives and learning new things. I'm just curious what you disagree with regarding the new Georgia voting laws. Also, do you agree with Biden that these are worse than Jim Crow? That seems like he's diminishing how horrific segregation really was. To compare segregation to having people prove who they are when they vote seems completely ridiculous to me. The one thing that I feel should not even be an issue is exactly what I'm hearing everyone's true problem with the bill is. You have to have a license or proof of identification to buy cigarettes, to walk into a federal building, pick up an online order, receive any type of subsidies from the government, pick up baseball tickets from will call, go on a plane, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you can go and get a free identification. Why is it so terrible to ensure people are who they say they are before they vote for public officials who will be running our country? It's really confusing to me. I look forward to your response. Thanks again. Look, I agree with you 100%. Anybody who compares what's going on in Georgia now to Jim Crow is a Jim Crow denial, is basically a segregation denial. It's like what I said about Holocaust uh, denial. You don't compare um, requiring people to show vaccinated to wearing yellow stars, because that diminishes the impact of the yellow star, which was a, a passport to death, not a passport to life, the way the uh, passports that um, may show you've been vaccinated are. I completely agree. Any analogy to Jim Crow, any analogy to segregation um, is absurd and bigoted and diminishes the suffering of those who lived under uh, Jim Crow. Um, and, and you have a point about requiring uh, a proof, but remember that conservatives, some of them, have the same hypocrisy. They want to be able to require you to show ID papers to vote, but they're against ID papers to show that you've been vaccinated. Um, I'm in favor of, of, of both. I have no problem with requiring a heightened level of identification. I think it should be broad. They should allow you to 
show either an ID or some other government document or uh, a utility bill or something else that assures with 99.9%, but not 100%, assurance that you're the person you say you are. I think if you go through the statute, you'll find that there are some areas where clearly the intent was to make it harder to vote if you're poor, if you're uh, living in neighborhoods where there are fewer polling places. But the, the statute is a mix. And if you don't like it, try to get a change. But I agree with you that to compare this to Jim Crow and to make a principled decision to have um, the All-Star Game move because it's so bad probably overstates it. And you make a very good point. It also understates the horrors of real Jim Crow and real segregation. So I'm with you about 90% of the way on your question. Thanks. Professor Dershowitz, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. First comment I wanted to make, you obviously have not changed, it sounds like, in 82 years. I was not a fan of yours for the longest time, believing that criminal attorneys just got you off if you were wealthy. However, obviously I must have changed because I've read your last several books, and now I'm listening to your podcast, especially when you started defending Trump and the other shoe argument is how I teach my kids. My comment today happens to be on the COVID vaccine. I'm a physician uh, in a hospital system here in Atlanta, Georgia. I am one of the few physicians who have not been vaccinated. I have many reasons I won't expound upon them, but I do agree 100% that I am not entitled to the rights and privileges of those that have been vaccinated because it was my choice. I was born Hispanic. That was not my choice. So comparing it to uh, what happened in the Holocaust, the Jews and the Nazis, absolutely a ridiculous argument because folks like myself, well-educated, know very much about the vaccines, chose not to get vaccinated. Therefore, I have no argument and can't make any comments. If I want to participate in normal society, in other words, normal by meaning back to normality from being uh, vaccinated, and I'm not, well, I, I made that choice. I wasn't born that way, and that's that. So I agree with you, and uh, I think you make excellent points, and obviously I'm the one who changed because uh, you haven't, and my wife agrees. Thanks for taking my call, Professor Dershowitz. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for having an open mind. Uh, you say you didn't like me because I represent uh, the rich and help rich people get off. I have to tell you, uh, more than half of my clients over the years have been poor. I've saved poor people from death row. I've saved uh, poor people from uh, lives in the gulag in the Soviet Union. Um, I probably have defended more poor people uh, free of charge uh, than any uh, private lawyer, not only in the country today, but probably in the history of the country. I don't think anybody has ever done more pro, pro bono work on behalf of poor people than I have over my 55-year career. I've lost cases involving very wealthy people. Mike Tyson uh, went to jail. Uh, Michael Milken went to uh, jail. Leona Helmsley went to jail. And both Leona Helmsley and Michael Milken, I helped them. I got their sentences reduced. But uh, they went to jail. Rich people go to jail. Poor people get acquitted. I've won cases on behalf of poor people, lost them on behalf of wealthy people. But I appreciate your point. And I appreciate your point about the choice you made. Um, that is the right approach, not necessarily the right approach, not take the vaccine. That's your decision. And right now, there's no compulsion to take the vaccine. And it sounds from what 
the Biden administration has said that they're not moving in that direction. They're moving in the direction of making the vaccine available to everybody who wants it. And that's the right approach. We can get to mandatory vaccinations only after everybody who wants to be vaccinated has been vaccinated. But you're right. Um, I have the right to know whether you've been vaccinated. And uh, I'd love to meet you someday, but I'm not going to meet you when you're unvaccinated. I'm not going to allow you into my home and I'm not going to consciously congregate near you because you can spread the disease and I'm only 85 percent safe or 90 percent safe, whatever the vaccine happens to be, and 10 percent is a lot. So I really appreciate your call and your open-mindedness. Look, you represent, I think, my typical viewer. You disagree with me about things, but you respect my views and you listen and you have an open mind and I have an open mind and sometimes you'll persuade me. Sometimes I'll persuade you. So please keep calling, keep subscribing, subscribe on on uh, iTunes, subscribe on Spotify, listen on YouTube, listen on uh, Rumble, tell your friends, please, we need as many listeners and callers as possible. So keep listening, keep viewing, and keep calling to The Dirt Show. An important part of The Dirt Show is your voice, your questions, your comments. Please call 24-7. The number is 216 710 0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call 24-7 is 216-710-0050. Hard questions, criticisms, everything's fine. Just keep your questions short and I'll answer them all on The Dirt Show.